Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Are you interested in ideas? Are you interested in life? That's philosophy. So listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR. It's great. And I'm Meredith Doig, President of the Rationalist Society of Australia. From politics, it is an easy step to silence. Jane Austen, Northanger Abbey, 1818. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today we're going to be looking at some political philosophy. We're going to be looking at the ethics behind the dismissal of the Whitlam government. And I'm speaking to Professor Jenny Hocking about her new book. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Beth. Now, you've actually written a couple of books on Gough Whitlam, haven't you? I have. It's been a very big part of my life for the last decade or so. But look, what an extraordinary subject. And really, it's been um, fascinating for me to look at the life of Gough Whitlam. Uh, I ended up writing a two-volume biography, which wasn't entirely intended, but uh, it's such a rich life, such a dramatic story and really you can look at uh, a very important significant part of Australia's history through looking at Gough Whitlam. So I think I was I was really very lucky to be able to have the opportunity to speak to him, to interview him for the book and uh, it came out in two volumes as I say in 2008 and again Gough Whitlam, his time, uh, the most recent one in, in 2012. And there are a couple of really big revelations in each of those books. If if I could just say for the first one, it was a very personal revelation for Goff himself, uh, which absolutely floored him. And uh, that was that uh, his grandfather, who he was named after, um, Henry Hugh Goff Whitlam, uh, in looking at his family's background, his family life, it's often misunderstood and assumed that Goff was something of a silver tail, as he was often called. But in fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, his f- own father had gone to university um, at night school. He'd been a scholarship student at uh, at Wesley. But I found that Gough Whitlam's grandfather had actually been um, convicted at the age of 19 of forgery and had spent four and a half years in Pentridge uh, um, from the age of, as I said, of 19. And so Whitlam was, I mean, to say was shocked uh, would understate his response. It was the first time he actually was lost for words. He said nothing. <laughs> and about 20 minutes later, he said, um, isn't it extraordinary that in a single generation, my family moved from one side of the law to the other, which I thought was a classic Whitlam response. <laughs> and of course, in the second volume, the major revelations were much more heavily political, and they were to do with the circumstances of the dismissal, which I, I think we'll talk more about today. So what was it that inspired your interest in Gough Whitlam? Look, I'd, I'd spent some time in the years before that writing a couple of biographies, one of Whitlam's Attorney-General Lionel Murphy, who was also, of course, a High Court judge, 
Um, and I suppose you might say I became an accidental political biographer because having moved from political science into writing biography, I just really enjoyed that as a form as a, as a form of, of writing and expression. It, it, it allows you a certain, uh, a certain not creativity, but a, a certain amount of narrative and character design, which in, in, in hard academia you really you really don't get. And I suppose it, 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 it was great. It, it was both a love of that form a love of the politics that you could look at. And, of course, I understood from looking at Murphy just how significant Gough Whitlam was to Murphy's own trajectory, his Attorney-General agenda, which was extraordinary. I mean, Murphy is another figure who I think uh, deserved that sort of close look in our history. His, his, his reforms include the Family Law Act, the Trade Practices Act, uh, Legal Aid and, and, and many, many others. The Racial Discrimination Act, of course, is a really significant one. Um, so it was, it was a great pleasure to look at, at Lionel Murphy's work, his work on the High Court, I think he became a very influential jurist despite the fact that he was so frequently in dissent. He took a very unusual approach to constitutional matters and I think that did have a longer-term effect, particularly on the Mason court. So having looked at Murphy, I, I always had in the back of my mind that it would be a fascinating subject to then look at, at Gough Whitlam. Um, and some years later I approached him and uh, he simply returned my facts to, him, to, to me the next morning with written in the margin, ring me. <laughs> uh, which of course I did and uh, we discussed it and he was uh, a, a marvellous subject and a very generous subject in that he never actually asked to see the book that I was writing he never wanted to see it before it was finished and in his own way I think he he allowed me to retain my my independence as a as a as a biographer which was extremely important to me and at the same time allowed me to interview him whenever I needed to. So it, it was really a marvellous relationship for a biographer to have. Mm, yeah, it would have been. So he he came across as a very nice person, so obviously he, he was a very, uh, a very sort of trustworthy and ethical sort of man. Would you describe him as? I think that's absolutely right, and in many ways you could say that almost to a fault I think part of Whitlam's unusual nature as a politician is that actually I came to the conclusion that he perhaps wasn't such a good judge of people um, on the ground. And, and the reason why I say that is, is that politics demands a certain finessing of numbers, of even your own party members, particularly during the times that Whitlam was party leader, which was very tumultuous in the Labor Party, but also in his key appointments – um, he was never a numbers man in a strict sense in the Labor Party. He crossed different factions. His interests were much more around policy, around particular themes, not left versus right. He had a wonderful right-hand man in Lance Barnard who became his deputy leader. And I think that really should be seen as one of the great political partnerships. Um, and Barnard did his sort of numbers, that hands-on, uh, more basic politics of numbers for Whitlam. And, and played a very important role in keeping that link back to the party. Whitlam could be aloof, he could be, in, a, in his own way, I think, shy, um, and, and he didn't play that side of politics all that well. Um, and when it came to some of those major appointments, like, for example, the major one being Sir John Kerr, it was just an appalling appointment as, as Governor-General. And there were other instances I cite in the book where Whitlam showed, I think, a bad judgment, a bad judgment on, on individuals. But the other side of that bad judgment is that it actually reflects what was his unquestioning belief that individuals in political roles and institutional roles and governmental roles would maintain 
the integrity uh, of those positions. It was unthinkable to him, for example, that a Governor-General would act in the way that Sir John Kerr acted. And even though there were those within his own party, Sir Clary Hart, as head of the Department of um, the Attorney-General's Department, tried to warn him that this was a possibility. Many people said to me that it was... It was something that Whitlam simply could not and would not countenance. And I think it was John Menadue who said to me that it, it, it's it's difficult to convey the utter conviction that Whitlam had that that simply could not happen. He was the elected head of government. He was the elected party. Kerr, after all, is nothing more or less than an appointed official. He has no mandate. He has no relationship to the Australian population in terms of electorate or any other sense. He is simply an appointed official. Um, and so, of course, it was unthinkable to Whitlam that he would in any way deceive him, much less actually remove him from his elected office. Now, there were quite a few actions that weren't ethical. Well, one of the things I wanted to really bring to light, I suppose, with my latest book, which is a, a book specifically about the dismissal called The Dismissal Dossier, and it's subtitled Everything You Were Never Meant to Know About November 1975, is is to bring to the fore really... You know, five key moments, I think, in the dismissal that are often forgotten and sometimes quite deliberately have been distorted in our history. And what I'm arguing there is that uh, there are several critical uh, facts that the established history quite quite concertedly uh, uh, removed from our understanding. Uh, they include the fact that Whitlam had decided to call a half-Senate election, uh, the fact that uh, Sir John Kerr was in secret contact with the leader of the opposition uh, in the weeks before the dismissal, something that both parties, I think, appallingly and scandalously denied publicly for decades. Uh, the fact that uh, Sir John Kerr had, at the very least, alerted the palace to the possibility that he might dismiss Whitlam. The fact that when Whitlam was dismissed and Fraser was installed, the House of Representatives continued to meet that afternoon and passed a motion of no confidence in Malcolm Fraser and called on the Governor-General to reinstate the Whitlam government. And, of course, the really big revelation that came out first in my biography in 2012, Gough Whitlam, uh, his time, is that Kerr had been in, in, in utterly secret discussions with um, the High Court Justice, Sir Anthony Mason, for five months prior to the dismissal. Now, this was utterly unknown for 37 years. And on each of those points, I, I felt there, there's, there's also a moral and ethical question on, on, on two aspects. One is each of those facts in themselves, the deception, the secret, uh, the deception of the Prime Minister, the secret communication with other key parties in the dismissal. But there's also been an additional ethical issue, and that is the continued deception of history. And it really troubled me from that moral point of view that, for example, when I interviewed Sir Anthony Mason, who had worked very hard to keep his role secret for 37 years, and I was able to interview him in 2011-2012, in, uh, and it was clear to him then that I knew of his involvement in Kerr's deliberations, the fact as he later himself acknowledged that he had actually drafted a letter of dismissal for Kerr, dismissing Whitlam. And I asked Mason to discuss that with me too, be interviewed about this, and I used the phrase, in the interests of history, would you, would you speak to me about it? And he simply said to me, I owe history nothing. And that shocked me. It shocked me enormously. Uh, he's an individual who holds a public office, who always has uh, held many public offices, particularly as a High Court Justice. 
And I felt, well, actually, you do owe history something. You've been involved in one of the major uh, political upheavals of our time and uh, and uh, have refused to speak about it, let it to, even to acknowledge it, to, to let it be known publicly for 37 years. So I was determined that what to me was a profound ethical as well as a political dimension to the dismissal would become clearer with this book. And, and they're the sorts of things, we can go into them in more detail, but, but they're the sorts of broad parameters that I felt really needed to be put into one relatively short book, just making those key points and those key analyses that I felt had been lacking in the, the historical understanding of the dismissal before. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Jenny Hocking, basically about the sacking of the Whitlam government. And we're discussing the ethical issues involved. Yes, so would you like to go into a bit more detail about, about the ethics well, for years, what we had been told and what I suppose the received understanding of the dismissal had become was that uh, supply was blocked in the, in the Senate, that Whitlam was refusing to budge, that supply was running out, that uh, there was no resolution, uh, that Whitlam was dismissed by the Governor-General, Fraser was installed and we went to an election. Now, on almost every point, that is incorrect. What we now know is that Whitlam had determined on an outcome, and that outcome was to hold a half-Senate election, which was something that he could call at any point before the following July. What we also now know is that he had, in fact, informed Kerr of that on the 6th of November, five days earlier. So advanced were those arrangements towards the half-Senate election that the paperwork had been drawn up, he had organised with Kerr the date on which this must be held, which was the 13th of December 1975. Um, he had organised the statement that was to be released calling the half-cent election. So when Whitlam uses the term ambush for what Sir John Kerr did on that day, it is a very proper and appropriate term because he was on the full understanding that they were moving towards the half-Senate election. And in fact, this was a pre-arranged meeting with Kerr on November the 11th, 1975, which was simply to hand over the final letter calling the half-Senate election that they had agreed to over the previous five days. So there is a major, not the only, but a major deception of the Prime Minister in the way in which he was brought to Government House expecting to call the half-Senate election and instead handed a letter dismissing him and his entire government from office. But we can go back even further to September 1975. Sir John Kerr's private papers, which were lodged about 10 years ago in the National Archives, are an absolute treasure trove of information about this episode. And Kerr wrote, one would say, obsessively, and that's not too strong a word, about the entire months leading up to the dismissal to individual conversations, individual episodes in which he, he goes back over them again and again and again. He really is a deeply damaged man and it's clear a deeply uh, troubled man. I don't think anybody would, would, would dispute that now. Even Malcolm Fraser described him as a weak man. And I think Fraser took full advantage of that weakness in a way that, that, that Whitlam didn't. Um, but if we go back to Kerr's papers, what they show is, is absolutely extraordinarily from September 1975. Kerr writes that as early as September, he had decided to maintain, in his own words, a silence 
to the Prime Minister. He was going to remain silent to him. Now, this is an extraordinary revelation. It's, it's showing that our own Governor-General has decided he will not speak, discuss, raise with his own Prime Minister any of the issues about his own thinking in terms of resolution of the supply crisis that was at that stage threatened but didn't in fact happen for another month. So for months, Kerr had already determined that Whitlam was someone he would not take into his confidence, he would not speak to. And the significance of that is that the key role, the central role and relationship on which the Governor-Generalship rests is that he acts on the advice of his Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, as I indicated earlier, is the elected head of the elected government. It is the Prime Minister to whom he has responsibility. So the idea that a Governor-General is not going to speak to the to the Prime Minister about those key facts is almost unthinkable. And, of course, it led Whitlam to make particular decisions, to take particular actions, totally unaware that Kerr had already determined on another path, namely dismissal. And there is almost no one now who would deny and dispute that Kerr was wrong to have dismissed without having first warned Whitlam. I think that is now an accepted part of this whole approach and that's something that has changed very much in the last 40 years in our thinking on the dismissal. Even Sir Anthony Mason, who had been in secret discussion with Kerr, now states that he had in fact, uh, and Kerr disputes this, but but states that he had in fact told Kerr that if he was to dismiss Whitlam, he must first warn him. And this, of course, is precisely what Kerr refused to do. So there are several, I think, ethical questions there about about the long-standing nature of the deception, about the extent of the people to whom uh, Kerr spoke and from whom he took advice, with which he had no responsibility constitutionally at all, and together with the immediate deception on the day of the dismissal itself. So how has the understanding and uh, certainly the publicity surrounding the dismissal changed over the years? Has this changed because more ethical issues have come to light? It, it has changed quite, I think, quite dramatically. If you look at the way in which the, the, the dismissal was immediately understood, um, it was very much one in which Kerr was pushed forward as somebody who saved Australia is, is, is a regular quote, certainly from the conservative side, who viewed his actions with gratitude and who, of course, were appointed to office, an office which they had not won at the previous two elections. Uh, so how convenient was that? So, of course, they were very happy with that outcome and Fraser was re-elected with a massive majority in one of the biggest defeats for the Labor Party in its history in the 1975 election. But I think we've seen it as both more complex and more shocking, Uh, certainly in recent years. I think it's only been really in the last probably decade that we've started to unravel a little bit more deeply what actually happened. And, of course, we find that it's far more complex, I think, than that that rather rather slight caricature of what happened had presented to us. But in particular, there are several things that we're now much more aware of. And one of those, uh, perhaps the only thing that really is raising any, contentious, any contention any longer, is the question of the extent to which the palace, that is the Queen, Prince Charles, her private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris, were aware of the possibility of dismissal. Now, I argue very strongly in the dismissal dossier that there's absolutely no question that the palace was informed by Kerr of the possibility, and I use that word very advisedly, the possibility of dismissal. Um, And what is significant here is that this, of course, was at the same time that Kerr had chosen uh, to take a path of silence to his own Prime Minister. So he's well aware that the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, believes that 
that the prospect of dismissal was an utter irrelevancy, that it could not happen, that Kerr had assured him it would never happen. And instead what we're finding now um, and what Kerr's notes and a journal that he kept from 1980 and other materials in his papers show very clearly is that he had at the very least um, spoken to the palace, in particular Sir Martin Charteris, but also in his letters to the palace, which are at the moment embargoed still, that he had informed them that he was concerned about his own position, that he was concerned that if Whitlam got wind that he was considering dismissing him, which of course informs the palace that he is considering dismissing him, Kerr was very concerned that he himself would be recalled by Whitlam. So the communication with the palace is always in, in primarily about Kerr's own position, but totally in the context that he is concerned about his position because he is considering dismissing the Whitlam government. Now, my view is that this, of course, indicates to the palace that this is something that is a live, a real prospect. And the fact that the palace made, it would appear, no adverse comment on that possibility to occur could only be taken, as I describe it, a royal green light to that prospect should it, in fact, occur as it did. Conversely, the palace made no effort to get in touch with Gough Whitlam to let him know that his Governor-General was in secret communication with them about something that included the possibility of dismissal. So on both those counts, again, you can see it as both a constitutional issue, but you can also see it as a moral issue. They are both aware that the the Governor-General is deceiving the Prime Minister, and at no point is the Prime Minister alerted to this. So uh, I think the more material that is coming out about uh, the knowledge of of, of institutions, of key um, areas of power, including the palace, the more we are aware that it seems that everybody was was aware that Kerr was considering dismissing Whitlam, except Gough Whitlam himself. So, look, how how do you think... I mean, it's a very incredibly underhanded, sneaky thing to do. How do you think that it affected the voters or the general, general population... Well, I, I actually think it affected them at the time immensely in terms of the polarisation that ensued. But I think, uh, sadly for Whitlam, as soon as the election was called, I think it affected them very little. And I say that because you look at elections, certainly in Australia, possibly everywhere, I'm, I'm not familiar with the election process elsewhere, but certainly here, the overriding issues have always been pretty clear and they've been um, the economy, uh, they've been people's well-being, they've been issues of, 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 of materiality. They've not been issues of what you might see as both moral and uh, ethical questions about the way in which politics has been done. So I think that in many ways the, the, the three years of the Whitlam government, and I do want to remind everybody that Gough Whitlam was elected a second time in May 1974 at the double dissolution election, which in many ways makes us look at the dismissal in, in an even more negative sense in that the government had only just been reaffirmed 18 months earlier, is, is that the, the issues that were driving the electorate in the month during which supply was blocked and the opposition was refusing to allow a vote to come forward on the government supply bills, those issues which the electorate was feeling keenly, and if you look at polling reports during that time, and there were very few polls taken then because at that time they were not automated in the way that they are now. We didn't have news poll every two weeks driving everybody crazy with you know, the arrow going up and down. They were, they were held maybe every six months because they were costly, they were labour-intensive. 
But during that period, it was such a dramatic time, there were actually two or three polls taken, which was unusual, but each of them showed consistently that the longer the supply crisis dragged on, the more Malcolm Fraser stocks were plummeting. There'd been a 10% drop over that month. And that's why it is true to say that the Governor-General's actions changed everything. People looked at the unprecedented action of dismissal and saw it as an enormous negative to Whitlam. There was this suspicion, and it was more than a suspicion in a way in which papers like The Australian and so on ran it, which was that there had to be more. The Governor-General knew more. There was something happening which led to the dismissal. Whitlam was a quasi-criminalised political figure at that point. And so it was dropped immediately as an electoral issue by most people, and hence the electoral fortunes of Fraser suddenly shot up after that. So I think it did have a dramatic effect in, in terms of overturning the way in which had the half-Senate election been called that Whitlam had gone to Government House to call, had that gone ahead, I think Fraser's career was over. And Fraser himself indicated that when I interviewed him and with other interviews that he did at the time. He was quite frank about that. He said he said the half-Senate election would have been the end of him as leader. He'd already spoken to his senior people in the party about that um, and that he would have gone to an, called an immediate party um, meeting and he would have tendered his resignation. Now, he was aware of that. The half-Senate election was was the solution to the crisis that everyone had been looking for. It was a solution that the Governor-General did, did not allow Gough Whitlam to take. Fantastic that you've done this research into it, and especially from more an ethical than a legal view. Do you have any plans for any future study? Look, there's, there's one remaining area of this that, that has been spoken about a lot recently as well. And that is the question of uh, the letters, the correspondence between Sir John Kerr and various members of the palace. Now, they've been embargoed for an unprecedented period of 60 years. And it's very interesting because they've been embargoed because the National Archives of Australia has determined them to be private, private letters and not official letters. So these are letters between our Governor-General and the Queen, and they've been called private. Uh, Now... (laughs) You know, you can immediately, I think, see why that's a slightly puzzling description of them. And it also happens that I found in Kerr's papers extracts of those letters. So even though they've been embargoed, I was able to identify what are actually unidentified extracts, but I was able to identify from another document he had matching these up that they are in fact extracts of letters that he wrote to the palace at particular times. So I've seen extracts of them. They are available, although you have to know where to find them. But there is nothing in those letters that would suggest anything other than official documentation, official descriptions of what was happening in the Australian political situation at the time, which is a standard exchange between a Governor-General and the monarch is to inform them, depending on how often they determine, to, to inform them as key political events. So I think that's an ongoing issue about... Uh, what will happen to the letters. I'm certainly exploring ways of having them released. I think they could be very interesting. The other thing I will say is that I was absolutely surprised and I have to say pleased to hear on the 40th anniversary of the dismissal last year Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull for the first time, I never thought I would hear this, a Liberal Prime Minister saying that he, he thought what Sir John Kerr had, uh, had done in dismissing Whitlam without warning was wrong and that he thought Malcolm Fraser's decision to block supply in order to achieve that was also wrong. So I think we have come uh, really a long way in the last 40 years. And when you look at what, what Turnbull was saying, he was expressing an ethical response. He was not talking about it in terms of the outcome politically or the legal reality or otherwise of, of, of what Kerr did. He was making 
an ethical judgment about the propriety of that as a set of actions. Uh, and I was both surprised and heartened. I mean, it might have taken 40 years, but I think for, for us now to acknowledge that that was, you know, basically a, a dreadful episode in our history. It's one that we're still exploring the implications of and indeed we're still exploring what actually happened. But um, I, I think we've come to a much better understanding of that 40 years later. So there might be some hope for politicians on an ethical level. Um, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Been a great pleasure, Beth. Thanks very much for having me. And I've been speaking to Professor Jenny Hocking about the sacking of the Whitlam government. I'm Sue Dodds and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial. And we've come to the end of the program today. Thank you very much for listening in. 